Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. I need to begin today's show by saying that this episode of The Infinite Inning has a discussion of suicide. I will be handling this story with my usual sardonic touch, but... That doesn't mean I don't take the matter of self-harm seriously. Indeed, I do, and my own life was greatly affected by a family member who took that option many, many years ago, and it was a long time getting past it, not just for me, but for members of my family who were even closer to the person who made that choice, and I think we all regret it to this day. As the cliché goes, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem, but that permanence flows in two directions because it affects both the person who chose to extinguish their bright candle prematurely, but the victimization continues. It goes onward for their loved ones, for the people who loved them for the rest of their lives, and those scars never, ever heal. It is, in that sense an inherently selfish act. It is therefore always important to be like Joe DiMaggio, make sure you get another at bat because you may get to keep the hitting streak going even if the last three resulted in strikeouts. As the Randy Newman song for the Pixar film goes, we may only go around this one time as far as I can tell. It's the time of your life, so live it well. And you will too, even if it looks dark and futile now. You will get to that place where you get to live it well provided that you take that next turn at bat. There have been many heartbreaking stories of people taking their own lives in baseball, from the intentional self-annihilation of Harry Pulliam, Chick Stahl, and Willard Hirschberger, some of which we've discussed on this program, to the accidental suicide via severe intoxication of Ed Delahanty. I don't know much for sure, but I do know that once one gives in to this dreadful impulse, Sometimes, or, or often even, out of very legitimate feelings of pain and sadness, they stop adding lines to the back of your baseball card because you have stopped adding lines. And those lines, they're more than just your numbers. They are you. They are your story. They are you saying, I am in here trying. Even if, as they sang in Damn Yankees, your luck is batting zero, better to take the offer than to do nothing at all, to have nothing at all, to be inert, to not get that next turn at bat. You've got to be in there punching, so please stay with it. To borrow from Superman, or one of the best lines ever written for Superman in a very similar situation, and it was written by Grant Morrison, you're much stronger than you think you are. Trust me. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is just a call, text, or chat message with the numbers 988. And if you're feeling too far down, or if you know someone who feels like they're looking up from the bottom of a well, use them, okay? There's never any rush to take up permanent residence in the infinite inning.
Hello there, and welcome back to the show. That was grim, I know. It was a dark way to start, but I wanted to get it out of the way right away. If you feel like, well, he's changed it up, we usually get two stories, that's where the first one normally is. No, you'll still get two. I didn't shortchange you in any way. I just wanted to put that out there at the beginning, and I will tell that story now, and we can get to some of the interstitial stuff that I tend to prevaricate about in between the first story and the second story. As usual, I've just off-shifted that first story a little bit. Please consult your program if you have any questions. You know how if you go to a theatrical production, perhaps a Broadway show, if you've been so fortunate, they note any substitutions by putting a little slip of paper in your program, and it will say, tonight, the role of Curly in Oklahoma will be played by person B instead of person A, who you may very well have paid to see. It could have been Hugh Jackman. It was Hugh Jackman at one point. It's like 20 years ago at this point, maybe a little more. He was good. You can find it. It's been recorded. It was shown on PBS. But they don't guarantee you Hugh Jackman. They just guarantee you a showing, a performance of Oklahoma with Hugh Jackman or not. And if you came to see Hugh Jackman and Hugh Jackman... Pulled a hamstring that morning. Well, no cowboy Wolverine singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. And baseball is just like that, too. You wish, though, that they would be more honest about it, that at Yankee Stadium they would say, Ladies and gentlemen, for this evening's performance, for this evening's game, the part of Aaron Judge will be played by a duck named Lambert. Lambert the duck, number 84. Batting seventh, Lambert the duck, number 84. And then you could just get up and go home. Maybe they'll give you the price of parking back. I'll tell you, though, Baseball America says that Lambert the Duck has a 70-hit tool. You don't see them say that much that often. Not about poultry, anyway. So let's begin. Our first tale this week springs forth from an illusion I made at great length a few episodes back and a couple of episodes in a row. I talked about the way that early Phillies owner William Baker left part of his ownership of the club to his young secretary, and then a few years later... His widow did the same thing, leaving the former secretary and her husband, Jerry, as the majority owners of the team, which they proceeded to run further into the ground than it had already been run by William Baker. They should have changed the name not to the Blue Jays, which they did very briefly. They should have changed it to the Philadelphia Moles. That's how far down they were. Watching the Phillies wasn't seeing a baseball game. It was a journey to the center of the earth. I wish I could do James Mason. James Mason starred in the best film version of Journey to the Center of the Earth. He also played Captain Nemo in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, so he was getting his deep-diving Jules Verne coverage in from both ends. I jokingly speculated that the Bakers set up their estate the way they did because they had some kind of polyamory thing going on with Jerry and May. That was on my mind because at that time, this was at the end of last year, beginning of this one, there were... A couple of prominent book releases on that subject, leading to several articles and publications I read. One of those, just so you can do the reading yourself, was the memoir More by Molly Roden Winter. I'm making that sound more salacious than it probably is. If you go to Amazon, as I just did to double check myself and search polyamory in the book section, you get a crazy number of hits. I feel like there are more poly books coming out or out on the shelves now than baseball books, and most of them are how-to books, and if you read about this practice, you can see why. One of the articles I read, and I think I referenced this when I spoke to you last about this subject, joked that poly people 
aren't obsessed with sex. They're obsessed with rules. And I am not shaming other people's romantic lifestyles at all. But for me, that sounds exhausting. There is an aspect to traditional marriage that can be confining. Being monogamous means ruling out all other romantic possibilities, considered or impulsive. And that's hard when you know that they are indeed out there. And no one person, no matter how special, can be all things to you. Simultaneously, being open to the universe of all possibilities means a very careful calibration of spheres so no one gets excluded or hurt. And it seems to me that setting up those sorts of boundaries must be just as confining in its own way. Reading between the lines, because I haven't lived my life by these precepts, people add new partners, they become overly enamored, they become sucked into the novelty of having that new partner, and then they become exclusionary of the people who were there before, whatever their number. And I know someone will take me to task for saying this, but if polyamory is just actually slow-motion serial coupling, then I doubt the entire premise. That said, I imagine with great dedication and discipline, it can be done well. It's just far easier to imagine someone who fails at it, who is too lazy or too dishonest to really execute on the potentiality of it. And in that sense, the story that I'm about to tell you or have already begun telling you is not about polyamory, which is intensely concerned with ethics, but it's opposite infidelity, bigamy and dishonesty. I have no idea how to succinctly sum up the early professional baseball player, Arthur Irwin. The guy was busy. He was in baseball for over 40 years. When I say he was an early professional, if you notice baseball reference in the biographical information on each page, notes the order in which players reached the major league. So whoever it considers the very first professional ball player, and I haven't looked, let's say George Wright or Harry Wright, he would be number one. And Corbin Carroll, last year's National League Rookie of the Year, was number 22,794 or 94th, <laughs> to reach the majors. And having said that, I glanced over at the next window. They call Harry Wright the 19th professional baseball player in history. Irwin was number 451, so he really did come up early in the whole sequence of professional baseball. Maybe he wasn't first generation, but he was in the first few. Irwin was primarily a shortstop of the light-hitting variety. He was born in Canada in 1858, the child of Irish immigrants. He grew up in Boston, though. He came up to the National League in 1880 with the now defunct, so very defunct, Worcester Ruby Legs when he was 22 years old. He also played for the Providence Grays, the Philadelphia Phillies, the Washington Nationals. This is the also defunct early version of the Nationals, and we'll clarify that in a second. And he also had jaunts with the Players League, which was a brief rebellion against the reserve clause, and the American Association, a National League rival, both times in Boston. A left-handed hitter, he averaged 241, had an on-base percentage of 299, though no one knew it at the time, and slugged 305. In 1881, the New York Clipper, the show business paper, which also covered baseball, said, His brilliant fielding, excellent batting, and clever base running have helped the Hoosters to many victories during the past two seasons. At 5'8 and 150 pounds, he was a little guy, which contrasts with his post-playing career when he was still 5'8", but looks more like 250 than 150. To borrow from Fiddler on the Roof, he became tall from side to side. I'm not sure if that's relevant, but somehow his appearance, which suggests gluttony, does correspond to his actions. And also, well, his weight corresponds to his health situation as well, as we'll see when we get a little further. 
Let me add this testimony. In an interview with the historian Eugene Murdoch, Wait Hoyt, the Hall of Fame pitcher, the Yankee for the most part, or Reds announcer, whatever you prefer, said of Irwin that he was probably the most disgusting man I ever knew. I never wished any person ill luck, but I hated that guy. Beginning when Irwin was 31, he managed, and he would manage on and off, mostly on, for the rest of his life. In the majors, he had three different stints managing two different National League teams located in Washington. First, there were the Nationals, who I mentioned earlier, then the Senators. Later, the American League had the Senators, who were often called the Nationals, but the only thing that these franchises had in common was their location, which was the District of Columbia. Otherwise, totally separate entities. Have you got that? Well, don't worry if you don't. It's not going to be on the quiz. He also managed the Phillies, the Giants, and in the American Association, the Boston Reds. This is the major league version of the association, not the minor league version. Don't worry, that's not on the quiz either. His 1891 association team, which had a few future Hall of Famers in Big Dan Bruthers, Hugh Duffy, and for about a nanosecond, King Kelly, won the league pennant. He managed another 13 seasons in the minors, and I am not going to list every one of those teams for you. Suffice it to say, he got around. I am intrigued by his work with the Toronto Canucks of the Eastern League in 1898. He had a piece of that club, and it's possible that he was endeavoring to move them into the Western League, which was the predecessor organization to the American League. Had he succeeded, would Toronto have been an original AL franchise in 1901? We'll never know. During all this time, or at least from 1903 on, he was also scouting for the Yankees during the Frank Farrell Big Bill Devery ownership. He also co-owned some minor league teams and had some real estate investments. When the American League was looking to set up the team that became the Red Sox, Van Johnson first went to Irwin, who owned some property suitable for a ballpark. He held out for more money, and they ended up saying, I'll see you around, and went to the Huntington Avenue grounds. In his spare time, he also invented, so he said, the padded baseball glove and maybe sign stealing or just signs. He also seems to have invented the football scoreboard or maybe the soccer scoreboard. I have no idea whether to credit that or not. He was involved in several controversies, including in 1891, plausibly, it seems, accusing the Giants of throwing the pennant to Boston so that the Cubs didn't play the American Association Reds in a postseason series. Now, wait, wait, wait. Did I say he did those things in his spare time? That wasn't his spare time. This was his spare time. Irwin led double life for 30 years with wives 200 miles apart, read the headlines in July of 1921. That year, Irwin, by then 63, was in his first season managing the Hartford Senators back in the Eastern League. This after three years of managing some pretty poor International League teams at Rochester. One of his players at Hartford was an 18-year-old Lou Gehrig. And Lou, who was at Columbia, shouldn't have been there at all. Between Irwin and John McGraw pressing Gehrig to screw around with his college eligibility, Lou was lucky he didn't lose his place at school or get banned by one league or another, and he knew it, and he resented them for taking advantage of him when he was just a teenager. At this point, you are probably beginning to grasp that Irwin was a bit challenged, ethically speaking. Well, he had been sick 
lost a lot of weight in a hurry without trying to, which is often a very bad sign. And he got a diagnosis, which seems to have been cancer and not the kind you can wait and watch and maybe do something about it. Maybe not. His doctors recommended immediate surgery, the alternative being checking out pretty darn fast. Or maybe he'd check out anyway because nothing is guaranteed. And as I often say, before antibiotics, invasive surgery was like playing Russian roulette with a microbe on the other side. Well, with thousands and thousands of microbes, antibiotics and good disinfecting and sanitary procedures by doctors, I should say. So Arthur Irwin was very probably on his way out, and that created a huge problem for him because how do you tidy up your affairs when you have two families who are ignorant of one another's existence? For 30 years, Irwin had lived in Hartford, Connecticut with, well, Mrs. Irwin, as far as anyone else knew. They had a son, Harold, 27 years old as of 1921, a veteran of the First World War, a bit to the north of present-day I-95 in Boston, was Elizabeth, who he had married in 1883, and their three children, Alice, Edna, and Herbert. Elizabeth just accepted that Arthur hadn't been home much since 1891. Since 1891! Because baseball had kept him busy, and it really had, but come on! <laughs> I quote from coverage of Arthur Irwin, Herbert was ill of diphtheria in February of this year and was recovering at his home in Cambridge when he received a visit from his father. Repeatedly, while he was in the home of his son, the father referred to him as Harold, until finally the wife and mother remonstrated, saying, Why do you call Herbert Harold? Irwin evaded the question. That slip, however, gave Herbert the first inkling that his father's life was not what it should have been. Pro tip to all aspiring bigamists. No man has a good enough memory to be a successful liar. So, having received the news that you are about to leave this world and you have no way to meet all your responsibilities and you lack the strength, the integrity, the fortitude to come clean with all those affected, your children who are grown up, the sons-in-law and daughters-in-law and potentially grandchildren, the wives, plural, how do you even begin to try to make things right with two families? What do you do? This was Irwin's answer. In Hartford, he got on a ship to Boston. Somewhere along the way, with the boat off the New England coast, he jumped. today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE or Summit 4xE. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. My favorite little touch in that song, self-undermining, as I like things. You probably caught it. As Randy sings, we may only go around this one time, far as I can tell. The backup singers say, you could be wrong about that. And he could be. Just don't let me come back as a cockroach. What if Marilyn Monroe came back as a cockroach? What would that say about the universe? And on that subject, look up the works of Don Marquis, specifically Archie and Mehitabel, if I'm saying that last correctly. Archie is a writer reincarnated as a cockroach who leaves notes by jumping from key to key on Don's typewriter Mehitabel is a cat. It's from the beginning of the 20th century, and it's pretty wonderful. Can we take a little break, as I usually do, before proceeding to the second story? I know things are slightly out of order this week. As I was wrapping up last week's episode, I saw the news that a statue, the statue of Jackie Robinson in Wichita, Kansas, had been stolen and desecrated. And I was appalled. To me, that's a hate crime. I'm very proud of Major League Baseball and the 30 teams who have chipped in to pay for a replacement for the statue, which was subsequently found chopped up and destroyed. Over $160,000 had also been donated by the public to replace the statue, which belonged to League 42, which served underprivileged youth and brought them to baseball, which is a wonderful thing. That's what baseball is for. Baseball has always been an engine for social advancement. Longtime listeners will know how passionate I am on this subject, and I felt like I should say something, but I also thought I should hang fire until there had been more developments, and there have been more. The loss of the statue, its potential replacement, and of course, the police have leads. But as far as I know, there have been, at least as we speak, no arrests made, and no motive has been disclosed. And that's what I'm waiting for, because I dread, I'm really hoping it was just some kind of theft, and they thought, oh, no one will notice if we steal a a giant Jackie Robinson statue. No one was watching it. It wasn't important to anybody. And my cousin said it was made out of copper and we can sell that and get a lot of dough for it. I really hope that because what I'm dreading is that it turns out to be some retrograde nut who is avenging the loss of his beloved Robert E. Lee or Nathan Bedford Forrest statue over the last few years. And with typically damaged reasoning said, they got one of ours. I'll take one of theirs. They take Captain Wurz, I'll take Octavius Caddo. And I wouldn't know how to begin. I wouldn't know where to start except to despair for my country. But as I said, that has yet to be revealed, if it will ever be revealed. You'd think if that were the case, then the perpetrators would have the courage of their convictions and stand up and be counted. In any case, we can still hold out hope that it was just dumb people of a less pernicious sort and that we haven't all lost our minds, our perspectives, our integrity. 
very briefly, the most dominated series at Baseball Prospectus, the worst teams of all time, essentially, continues on with Rob Maines and myself. This last week, Rob wrote about the 1963 Mets, an entry chock full of deprecating Casey Stengel comments. And I wrote about the 1912 Yankees. You would not expect the Yankees to show up on a list of most dominated teams ever. And for the most part, you would be completely correct. However, this was before things got organized, as I explained within the piece itself. Better ownership was three years away. Singular ownership was mm, 11 years away. And Babe Ruth was eight years away. And all those things had to happen. All those gates had to be gone through. One thing I learned from researching that story that I don't think I had understood perfectly before, I'd always wondered why when Ban Johnson finally got it together to compete with the Giants by opening an American League franchise in New York, which he did by transferring the Baltimore franchise, which had been intentionally destroyed by John McGraw. He had transferred that up to New York. I believe I alluded to this last time when we were talking about Kid Elberfeld. I never understood why he would choose two crooks like Frank Farrell and Big Bill Devery to own the club. It seemed really sloppy and irresponsible. What I don't think I had grasped was how little choice he had. They were Tammany Hall affiliated, and I knew that, but I hadn't realized that Tammany Hall, which was a combination big city political machine and an organized crime operation, had said, if you want to be here, if you want us to play ball in getting you set up, then you'll go with our boys. There are so many permits to be issued to a new ball club and a new ballpark and so much graft, so many kickbacks to be gathered. So let's make sure we have everyone in one tent, OK? And Johnson took what he could get. Boss Tweed's day was, what, 30 years earlier, give or take? But anything you read about him really could apply to the founding of the Highlanders or Yankees. Anything you read about his infamous courthouse could apply to Hilltop Park. Only the costumes changed. How long has civilization existed anyway? A lot has changed. We have become, in many ways, a fairer and more just world. But when it comes to human venality, nah, it was probably exactly the same 5,000 years ago. You probably had fee-for-service government in Babylon, too. So let's move on and have our next conversation, shall we? I know that there is usually a break between stories, but... As I said earlier, I kind of changed the order up this week, and we are just going to roll from one thing to another. I know it's dizzying. I know it's hard to get used to. 271 episodes in, always have done things one way. Now we're doing them another. We've all got to be flexible. Rigidity doesn't help anybody. I finally got around to watching Martin Scorsese's film Killers of the Flower Moon this past weekend. I guess it'll be up for Best Picture whenever the Academy Awards are issued, any day now, I guess. And I just hadn't been able to push myself to see it in the theaters, even though the subject matter is, of course, of a time and a place being the United States of America early in the 20th century. That obviously is up my alley. And even when it started streaming, I had to mentally prepare myself to be there for three and a half hours in the abstract. I love a long movie because if I'm having a good time, let's keep the good time going. Let's never go home as a writer. I firmly believe a story should have the length it needs to be told, which can be problematic when you primarily write for the Internet, where attention spans are probably properly assumed to be short. And we've reinforced that over time. We're all programmed that way now. But the fact is 
that some tales want to be short stories and others want to be novels. And when it comes to film stories, some want to be just one episode of a television series, like a one-off Twilight Zone episode. Even then, as that series showed when the network pushed it to go to a one-hour length in its fourth season, a lot of their stories only wanted to be 20 or 25 minutes plus commercials rather than 45 or 50 minutes plus commercials. The rhythm changed to its disadvantage. Similarly, some stories work very nicely in a compact 90-minute movie format, even shorter sometimes. One of the, the great Westerns, The Oxbow Incident, Henry Fonda, it's just over an hour. Disney's Dumbo, about that long. There just doesn't need to be more story there than they put in. And you could argue that it might need to be less story in places. Conversely, when I was recovering from surgery at the end of last year, it seemed like a good time to run consecutively all three extended editions of the Lord of the Rings pictures. So I was there not all in one day, but for four hours at a pop, I had nowhere else to be. I had nowhere else I could be or wanted to be. And that was wonderful. More scenes, more endings. Peter Jackson wants to have a scene where they just stop for lunch and eat fig jam. Fine, fine. And for the most part, I would have enjoyed that. I mean, I had seen the extended editions before and liked them because they weren't padded. They added more dimension to the story and the physical discomfort, which for me is the real problem, was less of an issue because I was home and I had the pause button. And that's really why I had this resistance to Killers of the Flower Moon, because at my age, my body does not want to sit still in a movie theater for 3.5 hours. It will not be comfortable on any number of levels. I need that pause button. At three and a half hours, you're bordering on one of those big, legit theater experiences where they adapt Tolstoy or Dickens word for word and they understand it's just not tenable in one sitting. So you get, oh, three acts of Nicholas Nickleby, and then they pause for two hours so you can go out and get dinner, and then you come back for part two. Maybe that day, maybe tomorrow. Maybe you don't come back. But okay, I finally watched it, and I enjoyed the experience, if enjoy is the right word for material that is so dire. Part of me thinks the time was mostly well used, and it justified the length. Part of me thinks it could have been an email at least for people who understand this country's history of racism and expropriation. Who understand and accept it, I mean. I think that's part of what the length was about. This is not a spoiler. This is the premise of the film. For those who haven't been paying attention either to the movie or to the book that preceded it, in 1920s Oklahoma, oil was found on property belonging to the Native American Osage tribe, who ironically were herded there by the federal government. Somehow, as part of that process, the tribe kept its mineral rights. So, whereas they had heretofore been some of the lowest status people in America, now they had real money, wealth-type money. It's not as simple as all that, because the government took it and mismanaged it, and there were years of lawsuits, but stay with me. At that point, and this is the truth, a bunch of white guys hatched a conspiracy to intermarry with Osage women, murder them, and inherit the oil rights and the money. There are a few lines in the movie that serve to sum up the perspective of those predators, which are boiled down to basically these people aren't people, they don't deserve this break they've got, it should be ours. Now, why they deserve it, I, I don't know. It's not stated, it's just assumed. Why? Because they're pink. You can murder them with impunity because the law doesn't apply to them. That's the gist of it. That's what could be the email 
I don't mean to sound snobbish when I say that if you've spent any time at all with our history, you already know that these attitudes existed. One of the most horrifying things you'll ever learn about as an American are the words of the infamous, at least to me, Colonel Chivington, as he led the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado in 1864, telling his troops to make sure they killed Native American women and children because, and I quote, nits breed lice. This is the dehumanizing language of every Nazi in history, even though literal Nazism hadn't yet been invented. The thing is, Scorsese knows that most Americans don't spend a nanosecond with history or science, and then they reject it when they do. So the 3.5 hours is just socking it home. It's something like immersion therapy. I do think it's worth your time, regardless of how prepared you are coming in. The design work is fantastic as someone who spends half his time looking at pictures of people from 110 years ago. It seemed to me they did a terrific job with makeup, costuming, and set design so that it seemed as if those pictures had come to life, and that by itself was a real thrill for me. As I watched the film, I kept thinking of the Native American ballplayers who were flourishing a little before and during this period. You're familiar with the names, and in many cases, probably the stories too, some of which we've talked about in the years that... We've been together, players like Lusak Alexis, Charles Bender, and Jack Myers, the latter two both often referred to as Chief, unfortunately, because that was the time, and Jim Thorpe, and then later players such as Allie Reynolds, called Super Chief, and also The Vanishing Native American, which was a uniquely special play on genocide, juxtaposed with his not being a complete game pitcher, very tasteful. Rudy York, Bob Johnson, often called Indian Bob. Some of these players were of wholly Native American ancestry, some partial descendants. Not that that should matter in any real sense. Of course it did, and this isn't a Native American thing, but it just goes to the omnipresence of racial considerations in American life at the turn of the 20th century. I recently stumbled across a 19th century outfielder named George Treadway. He played only about two and a half seasons in the National League from 1893 through 1896. In that last year, he got only eight plate appearances. He was a left-handed hitting outfielder out of Kentucky, born in 1866. He grew up in Ohio, though, and he was with the Orioles, the Ned Hanlon Orioles, the Dodgers, and for half a minute, as I just alluded to, the Colonels in Louisville. These were all NL teams. In 1894, with Brooklyn, he had 569 plate appearances and he hit 330 with a 420 on base and a 521 slugging percentage. He drove in 102 runs on 28 doubles, 26 triples, and four homers, and also crossed the plate 125 times. It was a very good, not great season in context. We'll return to that in a minute. But not only did he not have another season like it, he wasn't given very much of a chance to have another one like it, and I wondered why. Arguably, the answer can be found in a newspaper headline from 1893. Is Orioles right fielder an Ethiopian? Meaning, is George Treadway black? Why were they asking that question? Someone had spread the rumor around. He apparently had sort of a dark complexion. And at that time and place, trying to make your way through white society while being a little tan, a little darker than the average Caucasian, that could definitely be used against you. And it was used against George Treadway. And yet, talent. In December 1893, Hanlon, Ned Hanlon, the Baltimore Orioles manager, made a trade with Brooklyn, 
sending Treadway and third baseman Billy Schindel north in return for two players who, well, they have plaques now. Willie Keeler, Wee Willie Keeler, and the aforementioned earlier in the show, Big Dan Bruthers. The latter was a vet, while Willie was 22 and was being tried as a third baseman in Brooklyn. Hanlon took that little guy, put him in right field, and a Hall of Famer was born. That's two future Hall of Famers for a Treadway and a Schindel. Keeler was a prospect, a well-regarded one, but still an unknown. Bruthers, though, had been around for 14 years and had hit 343 to that point. He was one of the best hitters in the country at the time, the Baltimore Sun said when reporting the trade. I've wondered what kind of player Dan Bruthers would have been had he been playing today, given the differences in the game between then and now. And I can't say, but all things being equal, he would have been an annual contender for the MVP award, given the distance between his offensive abilities and those of the rest of the league, those have narrowed out over time for everyone because as the league has become more and more professional, the ability of the best players to tower above it has shrunken, which is great, actually, because it means we're not just seeing a few stars and a bunch of guys who should be restricted to beer league softball. They're all great athletes. Bruthers actually was not considered a great athlete in the sense that a center fielder would have been. He was strictly a first baseman. He reads like a DH. He was a big six foot two and thick as a tree. And I'd like to imagine that he would have been David Ortiz. Then again, Big Pappy didn't win five batting titles. So your guess is as good as mine. It really is just a, a purely fanciful exercise to try to make those comparisons because everything is so different. But the real point is that that was the kind of player that George Treadway brought in trade. And that was even though he had told Hanlon he wanted to be traded, didn't want to come back to Baltimore. So Hanlon didn't have a lot of leverage. He needed to get rid of this guy. Even if we can look back and say, well, George Treadway wasn't all that. He wasn't. Not really. He was just a decent player for a minute. But based on what they were looking at then, what Brooklyn was looking at then, they thought, yeah, we'll trade Dan Bruthers and we Willie Killer for him. That seems fair. So Treadway went off to Brooklyn, had his big year, the fans shouting, soak it, Tread, when he came to the plate. That was just the way they talked at baseball games back then. Even Treadway did. There was a game story I came across when another Dodger was at the plate, or whatever they were calling them at that point, the grooms. And he said, soak it, my boy, which sounds very, well, Victorian. The problem was the thing that makes it difficult to assess how good George Treadway was or might have been was the issue we already have discussed. He was of, quote, dark complexion, so he didn't get too much runway. Now, that is an inference on my part, and it might be a wrong one. Oddly enough, the Brooklyn Daily Eagle reported at about the time spring training would have kicked off in 1895, that is, after his big season, there is a question whether George Treadway will be retained by the Brooklyn management this season. Everything depends on the abilities displayed by John Anderson. Anderson was a rookie outfielder who would go on to be a decent player, a career 290, 329, 405 hitter, and about 1,600 games stretching to 1908. Treadway proved something of a disappointment last season, owing perhaps to the fact that he played out of his accustomed position in which he made such a fine record with Baltimore. I repeat, mentioning only batting average because that's all anyone would have thought about back then, Treadway hit 330 for Brooklyn in 1894. It's not as good as it sounds. We must concede that. The league average was 309, and Hugh Duffy, the league leader, decided to hit 440 that year. 
but it's plenty good. There were 90 qualified batters in the NL that year, and Treadway ranked 36th. If we consider OPS, he was 20th, but we can't because they couldn't have. He was third in triples and also second in strikeouts. So what we have here is maybe a slugging type of profile. Maybe he was Steve Balboni. He also made 35 errors in the outfield, which today would cause a player to be sent down, not to AAA, but to kindergarten. But with those flat pancake gloves, they were small too, so they were more blini gloves. It was just below average. I'm not trying to make an argument for George Treadway as a great player. What I'm suggesting is that when people have labeled you in a way that lends itself to racist judgments that dismiss your abilities, they stop seeing even the things that you do do well. I can't say for sure that that was the case for Treadway because the record is pretty sketchy. I can only say that it's a possibility because it's often how people work. It's how the Red Sox worked when they had Jackie Robinson on the field at Fenway Park for a tryout and said, in much coarser terms, don't call us, we'll call you, and then didn't call. George slumped in 1895. He hit 259. And if people think you're a disappointment when you hit 330, they're going to hate you when you hit 259. Brooklyn gave him only 87 games. He may have been hurt, although I didn't see any evidence of that. And he may also have asked for a trade. His major league career had those eight Louisville plate appearances left to go at that point. He was released by the Colonels in June 1896 and lit out for the West Coast, where he played in places like Seattle and Portland in the years straddling the founding of the Pacific Coast League. His last at-bats in that league came in 1904, when he was 37. Then he dropped from sight, picking up a bottle along the way down. The next time we hear of him, it's 1928. He turns up sleeping rough in then-remote Paris, California. Today it has an IHOP and a jack-in-the-box. He was dying. He passed on November 5th, less than a week before his 62nd birthday. Again, Think of the way the game makes room for favored personalities, people who are liked or approved of. And some of that is earned goodwill for sure. If you're positive in the clubhouse, if you're cooperative with the front office, they'll keep you around. There are coaches who stand in the first base box for 20 years. But what if you're of a despised race? Then they leave you to skulk about the heights of the San Bernardino National Forest. That is the same kind of thinking that dominated the world of Killers of the Flower Moon. I guess there is some justice at the end of the picture, or there was in real life, but full justice, meaning restoration, is impossible in cases of murder. I longed for something more uplifting, and what came to me repeatedly throughout the picture was the story of one of my favorite names in all of baseball history, Moses J. Yellow Horse was trespassed against by himself and got justice for himself. And we will discuss him and his story, you and I, together right after this very brief intermission. Grab yourself a cold one, but if you're listening while driving, keep it virgin, okay?
Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me. And you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Moses Yellow Horse was of the Pawnee Nation, out of Oklahoma, really out of Nebraska. But in the 1870s, the United States Army said, no, get away from there. And so they herded them all down to what was then called Indian Territory. And thus did Moses come into the world. He learned to pitch, so the story goes, by throwing rocks at small game, thus helping to keep his family fed. In 1920, he went 21-7 and seven with a 3.72 ERA for the Little Rock Travelers of the Southern Association and the Pirates bought him. These were the Hey Barney Pirates. The great Pirates pitcher Babe Adams said, We all thought he was going to come to spring training then go back to the bushes. But he had a fastball with more gas than Texaco. I should pause here to say that I picked that quote up and a few other notes here and there as well from a very odd book called 60 Feet, 6 Inches, and Other Distances from Home, The Baseball Life of Moe's Yellow Horse by Todd Fuller. Typical for the period, Yellow Horse joined Jack Myers and Charles Bender in being called Chief. It was, as we have discussed at great length, a period obsessed with race and really short on imagination, although maybe we should be grateful for that. The little Pawnee Indian is too good a prospect to be discarded, wrote the Pittsburgh Post. Another profile began... Pittsburgh fans have taken an especial liking to the young Oklahoma tribesman. They believe he will be the new Chief Bender. There was a ton of that new Chief Bender business, but at least they were singling him out and comparing him to an individual as opposed to just referring to him as the Indian, as in the Indian has got the stuff, says Pirates manager George Gibson. Yellow Horse made his Major League debut on April 10th, pitching two perfect innings against the Reds. Had they invented saves back then, he would have been credited with a save. Then again, if they had invented jetpacks back then, he would have flown to the ballpark. But still, as a rookie, he was more or less the last man on the staff and sat a lot. He made his first start on May 30th against the Cubs and held them to five hits and no runs in seven and two-thirds innings. Through early July, he had a solid 3.04 ERA in 47 and a third innings. 
His season, and in some senses his major league career, just about ended right there. He tore ligaments in his groin, pitching against the Cardinals on July 5th, and underwent surgery. He wasn't able to come back until September, getting in just one more inning at that point. Somewhere along the way, or that point, maybe after it, there was an arm injury as well, or several arm injuries. Fuller's book plays Rashomon with the injury, providing several different possibilities, including Yellow Horse falling out of a window while drunk and trying to hit on some passing girls. Drinking, unfortunately, was a big part of this story. Yellow Horse imbibed a lot. On the Pirates, his drinking partner was shortstop Rabbit Moranville. There is a story about their drinking escapades that I've always questioned, but Babe Adams said it was true. Hell, I still question it, because it seems so unlikely, but he was there and he saw it. You've probably heard it. I may even have told it to you one time or another when we've talked about the Rabbit. When Deacon Bill McKechnie was hired as Pirates manager... The owner told him to watch out for Moranville and Yellow Horse because they got up to more trouble together than they did separately, so the deacon decided to room with them. We all warned him to be careful, Adams said, but he wouldn't listen. Adams termed the climax of this experiment in babysitting the Pigeon Affair of 1922. The pirates were on the road, I'm not sure where, and the rabbit and Yellow Horse were bored, so they decided to see who could catch the most pigeons barehanded, as one does from the ledge outside their 16th story window. They spread some popcorn out on that ledge. They went out there too. And well, your urban pigeon, also known as the rock dove, it's very successful at having found a niche in a a world despoiled by shaved monkeys, by which I mean us, but they aren't known for their brains. And thus many pigeons were captured. I do believe that no pigeons were harmed in the events I am relating. Some of them may have been kind of stressed, however. Pause now, by the by, to ask yourself if those city-dwelling, garbage-eating pigeons might have just been covered in parasites. Now say to yourself, oh yes, oh yes, they are, and they were. Rabbit and Yellow Horse put them in the wardrobe, and you probably know the rest. The two birdnappers jumped into bed and pretended to be sleeping. McKechnie came back into the room, went to hang up his sports coat in the wardrobe, and got a puss full of pigeons. Adam said, Rabbit told me that the deacon hit the floor so loud it must have startled God. Various pirates spent the rest of the night trying to be responsible and get the pigeons back outside. Perhaps due to the groin injury, the mysterious arm injury, his addiction, or maybe the bird flu after that experience, Yellow Horse was mediocre in 1922. The pirates had a poor defense that year, and you can see from Yellow Horse's stats that the gloves did him no favors but it's too late to point that out now. The Pirates gave up on him, and they traded him and a few other fungible players, plus cash, to the Sacramento Senators in the Pacific Coast League for a pitching prospect, Earl Pinches Coons, who didn't work out. And I sure hope he wasn't called Pinches because of the way that he reacted to the ladies. Sacramento manager Charlie Pick had Yellow Horse throw 311 innings that year, And that is probably the source of his arm going south. We really don't have to think much harder than that. However many defenestrations he suffered trying to get girls to come up to his room. The next year, he was unable to pitch effectively. His season and his career, but for a three-game cameo with the Omaha Buffaloes of the low-level Western League a couple of years later, was over. As you might expect, that was when Yellow Horse really started drinking. He was off the map for most of the next 20 years. 
has that in common with George Treadway, actually. But I said this was a happy story, and it is, although it's hard to explain because, well, he didn't explain it. After a couple of decades, and wow, the 1930s were really the wrong time to be indigent. You had so much competition in that department and so many policemen trying to throw vagrants in jail and or onto chain gangs. He did the hardest thing a person can do. He reached the point where he was sick of himself. He decided to change, and he did. Did he find God? Did he go to Alcoholics Anonymous? Was he just exhausted with his own unforced errors? I have no idea. In a 1958 interview, he said, 13 years ago, I decided to give up drinking. I came to that decision on my own, and I did it with willpower. It's good enough for me. I just think it's incredible However, he was able to do it after 20 years. If you've seen Paul Thomas Anderson's movie Magnolia or just listened to the radio at some point between 1999 and now, you know, Amy Mann's Wise Up, the centerpiece of of that film and a song that if I hear it in the wrong mood, it can break me. You're sure there's a cure and you have finally found it. You think one drink will shrink you till you're underground and living down, but it's not going to stop. It's not going to stop till you wise up. And there are times that wising up seems impossible. The world's heaviest, most impossible challenge. You know the cliche paradox about God. Can God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? I don't know if he or she can, but each and every one of us possesses that power. I can make a rock so big I can't lift it. And that is true until I tell myself that I can, in fact, lift it. At some point, Moses Yellow Horse changed his mind about his burden. He wised up and put the bottle down. For the rest of his life, which continued until April 10th, 1964, he was an honored man in his community, an elder, a leader. It's not the most dramatic story. There's no big game at the end of the movie, no redemption moment on the field, just the quiet but massive victory of doing what needs to be done, of ceasing to say, I can't, I can't. We all can. We can do that. You can. I can. You'll change when you're ready. I know you will. Just like one of the greatest pitchers in history, Moses J. Yellow Horse. But for gosh sake, leave those pigeons alone. Isn't it neat how some stories are better when there's less of an explanation instead of more. Should you wish to follow me, you can do so at stephengoldman.bsky.social. Why bluesky.social? Well, we should probably leave that a mystery as well. You can write us by which I mean me at infiniteinning at gmail.com and there's a Facebook group. Simply go to Facebook, search on Infinite Inning, bang, you're there. If you are a first-time commenter, I have to let you in because otherwise we get foot porn. This is the world we live in, not the one I chose. Should you wish to support the show, and I very much hope you do, many of you already have, please visit patreon.com slash the infinite inning. Gear of a rudimentary kind of available at teespring.com slash store slash the hyphen infinite hyphen inning. Original soundtrack available gratis at casualobservermusic.bandcamp.com. Finally, should you find yourself with the proverbial moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate, review, and subscribe. It very much helps the show. And if your podcatcher does not let you do those things, and what do you talk? What do you talk? What do you talk? Where do you get it? 
Our theme song, which you are hearing now and have been listening to throughout the episode, was a co-composition of myself and Dr. Rick Mooring, who reminds you that a good key is necessary to enter paradise and also the bathroom at most gas stations. Well, if the Republic can endure just one more week, then I'll be back with more tales from inside the infinite inning. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware.